Hello, and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Bronwyn Maddox, joining you this week from Berlin. But there's only one place to start, and that's Manchester, where I was earlier in the week as well. Lots of upbeat speeches, rather too much upbeat dancing. Yes, the Conservative conference is over, and we're going to take a look at what we learned. As petrol ran dry and the supermarket shelves ran empty, the Prime Minister used his speech to insist that shortages of drivers, abattoir workers and so on were just teething problems after Brexit and that he was setting the country on the road to higher wages and productivity and more growth. So is he right that he's leading an economic revolution comparable to Thatcher's? Or are his plans economically illiterate, as one leading right-of-centre think tank called them? And what's more, being improvised by the week? We're going to dig into those questions. We're then going to turn our attention to Germany because an important election has recently taken place, even if the identity of the new government is not yet quite clear. Angela Merkel is still Chancellor, but not for much longer, probably. So what's going on and what does it mean for running a country with coalitions? And what role did wage policy play in those results? To discuss all this, I'm delighted to be joined by two IFG survivors of the party conferences. First, Chief Economist Gemma Tetlow. Hi, Gemma. Hello. And Alex Thomas, who leads our work on the civil service. Hi, Alex. Hi, Bronwyn. How are you both bearing up? Catching up on sleep. (laughs) Too bad, not too bad. Long week. And I'm delighted as well to be joined by John Kampfner, commentator, journalist and astute observer of British politics and author of the much discussed book, Why the Germans Do It Better. Hi, John. Great to have you with us. Hi there, Bronwyn. Great to be here. Great. And you're also in Berlin at the moment, am I right? I am. But um, on my way back to Britain, I sort of divide my time between the two. We're glad to have caught you for this. All right, let's begin, not in Berlin, let's begin with the Conservative Party conference. And I want to start by getting a feel of the mood in Manchester. Alex, as a former civil servant, it was your first Conservative conference. How did it compare to Labour's the week before? Yes, these were my, my, my first experience. My sort of my anthropological journey continues, as I uh, have been saying to uh, everybody. It was very different. Uh, I mean, different attendees, different tribes, a different vibe. There was a sense of much more money being around. The exhibition centre was, you know, less freshers fair, more arms fair, if that's uh, not an unfair com- comparison to both sides, but uh, much uh, slicker presentations and uh, much much less politics actually going on than, uh, than at the Labour conference. There was much more a sense of delegates, I think, being told what the message was and being sort of buoyed up rather than the political debate that was happening at the Labour conference. But both were interesting, quite different, very interesting insights, as I, I think I said last week, for, a, for an ex-civil servant to see these uh, pressures operating on um, uh, political leaders and government uh, ministers from a, from a very different mm. perspective. A very green collection of things in the exhibition hall, I found, compared to, you know, often it can be a, almost a parody of people's image of conservatism and country living and, and, and so on. But you know, green cars, green energy, there was a lot of that. Yes, a big, uh, big stand about uh, COP, the Conference of the Parties, and you know, environmentally themed stands. The I have to say, the, the Facebook stand that uh, was were looking a little glum after the uh, after Monday night when uh, WhatsApp and uh, Facebook went down. So again, a sort of an illustration of the perils of a, a big presence at a political conference when something embarrassing happens. So uh, that was that was interesting as well. Boris Johnson appears utterly without fear in that that conference speech str- jokes strung together without vertigo, as Quentin Lett said in the. Time. Times. What was your impression of that key speech? 
it did the job very well for the party. I mean, like, as is a theme of this conference, and I'm sure we're going to talk about it in a, in a minute, it felt very discongruent with things that were happening outside the, uh, you know, the secure zone and the conference bubble with fuel crisis and supply chain uh, difficulties and pigs being pointlessly slaughtered and, and so on. It was discordant with that. But as a speech, I thought it held together pretty well. It was a little bit more prepared than some of the other offerings that we've seen from the Prime Minister. And he, you know, he knows how to tickle the underbelly of the Conservative Party. To me, he almost made explicit this division that was that was there through the conference between what you might think of as uh, traditional classic conservatism, low tax, free market, liberal economics, and the leveling up more uh, interventionist strain. And so that sort of that that came out quite explicitly. But then part of Boris Johnson's political skill, I suppose, is that he was able to uh, to sort of smother all of that with a bit of rhetoric and a bit of party pleasing. Uh, language uh, and so uh, was able to sort of take away with one hand if you like but then emphatically give with the rhetoric and with the attacks on Keir Starmer and the uh, sort of nod to anti-wokeism and, uh, and and so on. John you've written about politics for a very long time what's your assessment of, the, of, of this speech the, the Boris stream of jokes if you like and this very odd moment coming out of coronavirus when we've got a conservative government which is doing lots of stuff associated with the left. Well, I must say, Bronwyn, I think my first party conferences were back in the mid-90s. Labour was in opposition, and it was a certain Boris Johnson who wrote, and I use the language uh, accordingly because A, it is very Johnsonian, and B, it is in the pre-PC era, in which he said, this was in 1995 or six, I can't quite recall, that you know Labour is going to win the 97 general election because the party conference is full of totty. And that was the way he described it then. I think that tells you everything you need to know uh, of Boris Johnson as the bravura commentator turned wannabe politician. And he hasn't really changed What has changed emphatically is the balance of confidence between the two parties. Now, you have Labour, um, which should be on a roll if one objectively surveys the state of Britain at the moment, and one needs only to read international media to understand the state of Britain perhaps better than if one reads the British media, the extent of the queues the extent to which there is just a sense of a, of a country stumbling from one crisis to another and will come to international relations and European relations, I'm sure, shortly. But at the same time, Johnson was able to carry the floor with uh, a display of unbridled optimism and a stream of jokes And at the same time, you look at the Labour Party, which should be absolutely cleaning up at the moment, given the extent of the attack points that they have at their potential against the government. And yet they were, as is very much in keeping with the party, um, totally enmeshed in their own internal strife and not cutting a confident figure um, appearance to the public. Gemma, I'm going to come to you in a second on the on the really substance of, of the speech. But Alex, just in a nutshell, did you think the jokes worked? The heroin, the woke, the John Bon Govey laughing at Michael Michael Gove's dancing, all this kind of thing. 
Oh gosh, I mean uh, the the favourite one, the one that echoes, and I've seen you know most on Twitter, but it probably reflects my Twitter feed more than anything else. Is the sort of raucous, gorgeous, orcus, caucus one, just because of the sort of lyricism uh, uh, of it. Uh, 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 <laughs> How on earth do you sh- translate that into Chinese? Uh, yes, uh, <laughs> but I, 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 I mean, my reflection is again, it shows the sort of bravura and the style. I, I didn't think the jokes were that good. They were sort of Johnsonian verbiage. Uh, and actually, the best joke of the whole conference season was probably Keir Starmer's one about uh, his father being a toolmaker and, and Boris Johnson's being the, the same. But Starmer delivered it so badly and Johnson delivered his so well that you wouldn't have thought that that, that was the case. So I think that, that says a lot about the sort of the, the delivery um, uh, and the style of the two men. Gemma, let's turn to some of the um, the substance of it, as I said, because there's been an awful lot of disquiet, particularly from business, uh, since Boris Johnson's speech, and from those conservatives who thought they were the party of business. And as Robert Shrimsley said in the Financial Times, it turns out that when Boris Johnson said, fuck business, he really meant it. Was this an anti-business conference? I don't think, I mean, having been at the conference, there was a big presence of business. Um, and my impression was that business was there trying to make the case to the party and to ministers about why they still have a part to play. There was quite a lot of discussion of how can business contribute to the government's vision of levelling up. But at the same time, there was definitely disquiet and trying to get messages out there that there's a limit to how far you can keep taxing business. Um, And there was clearly quite a bit of discussion around the issues of worker shortages. Was it an anti-business conference? I, I think ministers were still running both lines. The There was definitely much more of a kind of bigger government line than you would have expected in the past from the Conservatives. On the other hand, there was also quite, I mean, Rishi Sunak actually very sort of explicitly echoed the same phrase that came from Rachel Reeves the previous week about this being a government of both the public sector and the private sector. And there was quite a lot of mention of how the private, uh, I mean, um, Michael Gove, for example, was talking about the role that the private sector would play in delivering higher living standards as part of the levelling up agenda. So I don't think it was, I don't think it was an explicitly anti-business conference, but there definitely was a different vision of what the state is and the the sort of size and power of the state than you probably would have got from previous Conservative governments. Okay, Gemma, let's, let's take those points and actually drill into this a bit further um, because it really is a very interesting economic argument that has come out of the Conservative conference. You've got business on the one hand complaining that they're suffering from higher energy prices. They've got shortages of uh, of, uh, fuel. They've got shortages of labour across the board. And here's the government saying, no, you can't have more visas. You've got to work your way to paying uh, your employees much more. And this is a transition to a higher wage economy. And they're feeling hit on all sides by this. And I, I wondered your... I very much wanted your take on Boris Johnson's argument there, uh, the one that the Institute of Economic Affairs called economically illiterate. But he's saying, look, I'm remaking the economy. I'm going to say that now that we're out of Brexit, no, the economy cannot have the access to cheap labour that it's had for a long time from Central and Eastern Europe. And Brits must work out how um, to pay their employees more. What do you make of it? 
it did seem to be a bit of a post hoc justification of the problems or a trying to put a positive spin on the issues around labour shortages that there are at the moment. Um, from a political standpoint, it actually seemed to be a pretty uh, winning strategy. And I think, as Alex said, there was inside the conference hall, you didn't get a lot of sense of the problems that were going on in the outside world. And this line um, seemed to play reasonably well with uh, some groups who were there. But it, you're right, it didn't go down well with some of the conservative economic think tanks. And broadly, I think their their response is right. So try and sort of explain what the issue is that's going on. They're kind of, there are two reasons that you could end up with wages rising. The good reason is that your workers are becoming more productive, they're able to produce more, and therefore they're able to command higher wages. The bad reason is more what we're getting at the moment, which is that you're butting up against the constraints of the UK's capacity to produce anything. So you're running out of workers, businesses having to bid against each other for workers, that's pushing up wages. But because those workers aren't producing anymore, those higher wages are going to have to feed through into higher prices. Higher prices means inflation, and that will prompt the Bank of England to start raising interest rates. So we're looking at sort of higher costs of living, even though so higher wages will just be matched by higher prices. That's not the kind of wage growth um, that we want. I think Boris Johnson is right to identify that there are concerns that employers have perhaps been too easily able to employ workers on low wages with poor conditions and without feeling the need to offer any training. Um, so it's clear that there is something that's not working and perhaps that's where the government's rhetoric is now tapping into something that people see on the ground. But I d it's not necessarily uh, to do with immigration in the past. We, you see other countries uh, across Europe that have high levels of immigration, but also have higher wages and uh, high, better working conditions. So there could well be other areas of policy that are creating problems. It's not solely immigration. So I think the question is, is the government really serious about uh, addressing that whole uh, picture of problems rather than just trying to spin this as a positive news story out of the supply shortages? Really interesting point. John, do you think Johnson's onto something? Uh, um, well, the rhetoric around decent salary for decent labour is a very strong one. And I absolutely agree that uh, immigration may have played a role in the past. Brexit is used now as the stick with which to beat or to use to apply to justify any government policy, no matter whether or not there is a link at all. But the, if you look at the government's attempts to bring in uh, HGB drivers from the European Union since they relaxed the rules temporarily, only two dozen people have bothered to apply because you now have certainly seen from the outside an atmosphere of hostility towards the European Union and that translates into individual workers wanting to go into a country. And I remember a couple of years ago being asked to give evidence before the Brexit um, House of Commons committee. And this was with reference to the creative industries, but this applies to any sector of employment. And I said, it's one thing to allow somebody to work in a country. It's quite another to welcome them to that country. And we're now in the point where that is being played out and that is going to continue to create uh, labor supply shortages among both skilled and unskilled workers because we simply do not have 
that labour supply in the UK to fill those important jobs. Thanks for that. Alex, what do you reckon about the political gamble that the, the government is taking? We've got these problems of energy, food and fuel. The government has cutely called this the effing problem that could continue through the winter. What, what do you make of it? It's really difficult to know. And we, we were debating this uh, throughout our time at the conference as well, because there are two quite distinct possible futures, one, one of which was the one that uh, the conservative pollsters and campaigners were talking about, which was, a you know, from their perspective, a confident one where the polls are pretty solid. Uh, none of this seems to be cutting through. They're honing their campaign messages for the next uh, election and uh, everything seems rosy in uh, Tory land. But then the other, as as you say, is this sort of uh, sense of fragility and a sense that if things change, they could change very quickly. Personally, I, I, I don't know and wouldn't pretend to know, but I incline slightly more towards the kind of fragile sense and, uh, you know, uh, hubris before nemesis and, and all of that. It feels like at some point, surely some of the economic and uh, related difficulties will cut through and this will make life very difficult for government. I don't know whether that means they'll you know win or lose the next election, but the suspended gravity can't carry on forever. But that's not what the, the polls suggest. That's not what the internal campaign messages from the Conservative Party seem to suggest, and it's definitely not what they think at the moment. I also think the riding of two horses that we were talking about earlier in terms of the sort of traditional con- Conservative economic thinking and uh, and, and Johnsonianism is, is interesting. There were, you know, we went to a fringe event with Dominic Raab, who was not so subtly nodding to a kind of, you know, we... we we're all signed up to this uh, this Johnson approach for the moment, but you know me. I'm a you know I'm I'm a free market liberal. I'm I'm a low tax man, and I think Liz Truss was playing the same game. So there was a sort of question about if if things turn for Johnson, the cabinet could turn quite quickly, and all this sort of centrist investment, high tax stuff could could become a problem for him. And we've got, of course, as we've been discussing in recent podcasts, a lot of the support mechanisms uh, for coronavirus now ending, whether it's on rent or on furlough, or and now the most controversial, the removal of the £20 a week um, uplift in, in universal credit. John, I mean, is this a window of opportunity for Labour? It should be, but it isn't, um, or it's not turning out that way. The absolute unmovability of the opinion polls is a constant matter of head-scratching. Uh, it is leading, as ever, to more mushering in the Labour Party, but um, Keir Starmer is here to stay. Is there going to be, Peter Kellner wrote an interesting piece in, in the New European last week saying there is always a tipping point, but tipping points can quite often have a six- or a 12-month delay in terms of public opinion. I don't frankly see that at the moment, And so we have a curious situation of a lot of people at all ends, actually, well, apart from the very wealthy, at all ends of the economic spectrum and at all ends of the country, beginning to see real-time difficulties, much of which can be attributed to Brexit, some of which can be attributed to COVID, and some of which can be attributed to forces beyond people's control, and some of which is, is government policy, but it is impacting on daily lives, and yet the main opposition party is failing to make capital out of it. Gemma, where does this go next? Mandatory, higher minimum wage? Uh, what, what are going to be the big economic stories of the next year? So I think there are kind of two big possible futures, and I, I don't know, honestly, which one um, will play out at the moment. I think there's the one that Rishi Sunak and other ministers will be hoping for, which is that the recovery from COVID goes 
even better than we're expecting at the moment. That delivers bonuses for tax revenues. And starting next year, the government can start to contemplate going into the next election, promising tax cuts because things weren't as bad as we thought they were going to be. Um, I think the alternative world is one more like what John was just painting there, that we start to see rising prices. We face the question of finally um, seeing interest rate rises from the Bank of England, which we haven't seen in years, and those sorts of cost of living increases return, and uh, we don't get sort of stronger bounce back from a COVID crisis. And then the question really bites of how are the government going to deliver on their promise to raise living standards, particularly uh, for those where they're lowest in the country. Um, Those are two quite different um, futures and would have quite different implications to the politics of this. Well, Gemma, I know you've got to head off lots for the IFG economics team to think about, including the things that you've just been describing to us. So thanks so much for being with us. Okay, well, with that, let's leave the UK behind. They're not all these questions and head across to where I and John are now, which is Germany. John, bring us up to date. Germans went to the polls a fortnight ago. Where are we now? So Germans went to the polls. They dealt a resounding vote of no confidence in the Christian Democrats, the centre-right party, um, which is uh, will soon not be led by Angela Merkel after 16 years in government. It was a curious verdict because Merkel's own personal ratings are sky high, pretty much where they've been most of the time she has been in office. And yet there was something between disdain and fury uh, towards her chosen successor, Armin Laschet, who um, bumbled his way through the campaign, making mistake after mistake. So the CDU ended up with post-war historic lows of under 25%. It was pipped to the post by the Social Democrats, a party for whom obituaries had been written up to a couple of, uh, only a few weeks before the election as part of the general demise of European social democracy, including the Labour Party's perpetual difficulties. And yet their leader, Olaf Scholz, who was the number two in Merkel's grand coalition government as finance minister, managed, even though he belongs to the different party, to recreate himself in Merkel's image as somebody who said very little, um, kept his counsel, but was thoroughly reliable. Now, he was rewarded, and I'm not sure reward is necessarily the right word, with a a verdict just ahead of the CDU's, 25-odd percent. Um, And he is almost certainly going to become the next chancellor. The real story, however, is the two smaller parties, the Greens and the liberal pro-business Free Democrats. And I followed both. I was for the week ahead of the elections and a couple of days afterwards, an election observer with a a German organization called the German Academic Exchange Service. And there were a dozen or so people from around the world. And we were invited to observe and to discuss with political scientists, whatever. It was fascinating. And I spent some time with those two smaller parties And even though they look different and they sound different, very sort of strongly green party environmentalist and with all the political attributes that that entails and a pro-business party as well, actually, sociologically, they're very similar. 
they're younger, they're more socially liberal, they are untraditional, they're more into individual liberties and not the old sort of status machine politics of the two big parties. They have been pre-negotiating between them and they've succeeded in those pre-negotiations. Now they're having conversations with Schultz. At the same time, Armin Laschet has finally agreed churlishly to stand down from the CDU. So I think we're getting to a point where in a couple of months' time maximum, we're going to have what's called, uh, German coalitions are always um, given names according to their colours, so a traffic light coalition of the Social Democrats in charge, but only red, yellow and green, red Social Democrats, yellow Liberals, green, Greens. Um, and it's going to be quite a horizontal government because Schultz is going to need these two younger, more dynamic parties. And as Gideon Rackman wrote in the FT a couple of days ago, this is an absolute thumbs up for German democracy and for this kind of evolutionary sense of renewal, because Germany is really one of the debit sides of the Merkel era, was just how old-fashioned Germany had become. Uh, its whole digital approach is sort of antediluvian, and there are a lot of things wrong with Germany, but at the same time, it always seems to manage to renew itself in a sort of calm, quiet way, and and to catch up and eventually overtake. So there's a lot, after much crouching during the campaign, there's a lot of optimism now. And as you said, um, you know, this would mark a really distinct change after the 16 years of, of Angela Merkel, really, you know, kind of anchor of the of the EU, um, as well as Germany for all that time, a really distinct move towards this left-wing coalition. You also mentioned it might take some time, finally, to consolidate this. Germany gives itself a lot of time to form coalitions. Does that work? Uh, essentially, it does. The last time it was problematic, it took six months for the new co coalition, but in some ways it didn't matter so much because Merkel was in, was, stayed in charge anyway. Now she's there, but she's really, and she's desperate to, to go and to go quietly and just to get on with a more private life. But she always uses the term duty, so she'll get on with it. She's got the, um, uh, the G20 coming up, the COP26 that she's going to have to oversee. But it will be a good transition. I would quibble, however, uh, Bronwyn, with your use of the term left wing. It won't be a left wing coalition this one at all it's going to be very much a centrist one because the free democrats are of all the parties in germany the most pro-business and pro-low tax alex just just sticking on this coalition point and the forming of the coalition uh, you saw this in uk politics and in 2010 the coalition agreement was all wrapped up in five days uh, do you envy this calm quiet uh, period to put things together that you're seeing in germany it's a bit of envy and it's a little bit of unhealthy relishing of the excitement of, uh, of, of British politics and the kind of immediacy of it. But I mean, on a, on a <clears throat> serious point, I, d I do think the uh, sort of sheer unexpected unusualness that we shouldn't have been so surprised in, in, in 2010 uh, led to a slightly kind of frenzied environment or, or almost around the formation of the coalition. And that's not a good environment for decision making, not a good environment for, for deal making. I mean, as, as it happens, I think the coalition agreement in terms of sort of 
governance stood up pretty well uh, and I'm not sure that that more time would have led to an Im, Im, improved situation but kind of Gordon Brown squatting in Downing Street the uh, need for immediacy and the the fear that if a government isn't formed almost straight away everything will collapse is is not a, a healthy one and so I think uh, this, the, the, the same would apply incidentally to government reshuffles we've seen a reshuffle fairly recently it all happens immediately and uh, um, quite uh, uh, brutally that's not good for ministers uh, understanding their portfolios having to take decisions from hour one or day one of the of of, of the job so uh, a, a little bit of uh, uh, german style calmness uh, you know tortoise rather than the hare might not go go amiss i think but that would require quite a profound change in uh, not just sort of um, prime ministerial decisions but the the media and the whole culture of british uh, government Alex is entirely right. It's not just um, a question of politics as theatre and politics as drama. And it's very much that. And Germans watched during all the uh, Theresa May era Brexit late night votes uh, with no little curiosity. Uh, One friend of mine said that she'd given up her Netflix subscription because she got all the drama she needed watching the British Parliament. And so they, they enjoy that in one respect. But at the same time, There is a sense, I mean, it is such a fundamentally different approach. It is not politics as winner takes all. It is not politics as as binary defeat or victory. It is actually, coalition building isn't just a product of constitutional requirement. It is seen as a good in itself. And a government that can incorporate as many uh, disparate political viewpoints as possible as I say, it's not regarded as a weakness, it's regarded as a strength, because you're bringing as many members of the public and voters along with you. Um, at least that's the theory. And I do think in most cases, Germany has been incredibly well governed, just purely in terms of the quality of governance over the years. And it is largely to do with that very different approach. It's really interesting. I want to pick up with both of you two points where it seems to me um, the UK might look with interest at Germany. One is the question of, um, of wage policy and what that role that played, and, and then the other one I'll come on to is levelling up. I mean, it's kind of kind of a world <laughs> um, global um, experiment in, in, in levelling up that uh, that, that Germany uh, did with reunification. But let's just start with the wages. And John, I wonder if you could take us into something called the Hearts Reforms, which were in two thousand and three, and were an attempt to do something about the unemployment that existed at that point in Germany uh, a decade or so on from reunification. And it, it was creating a low-wage sector, wasn't it? How did that go go down? It was curious. I mean, this was the era, 2003, in which Germany felt incredibly underconfident. Uh, the Economist in 1999 famously uh, had a cover with Germany as the sick man of Europe. And wherever Germans looked, they thought, oh, my goodness, we're so hidebound. Uh, We have to liberalize our economic practices, as they really did need to. Gerhard Schröder, who was the Social Democrat Chancellor at the time, enacted what for Germany were incredibly radical reforms. They were radical not just in the economic implementation and the economic results, but they absolutely struck at the heart of the post-war German consensus, which was based on a social market model of the economy, uh, in which uh, Thatcherism, or even a much milder form, uh, would never be allowed to touch. 
as part of this also, this sort of political census, consensus idea. So what he int- introduced was much more flexible working, much tougher sh- social security conditions about how long you could sign on, the search for jobs and that kind of thing. In British or American terms, they wouldn't have been seen as particularly radical, but they were absolutely um, fundamental to a change in mindset in Germany. And as we bring back to the present day, it was political suicide for the Social Democrats. They were absolutely reviled as a result of it. And when Merkel took over from Schroeder only two years later, beating him at the elections, she was incredibly careful, even though she belongs to the centre-right, to distance herself from the reforms, even though she implemented them. It was that sort of political cross-dressing that, that interested me in, in, in the context of Boris Johnson, because there's a, you know, as, as, as John just said, Schroeder was um, SPD, you know, supposedly uh, quote-unquote left-wing politician enacting quote-unquote right-wing uh, economic reforms, and Johnson is, is, is trying to do the thing in reverse. I mean, the, the lesson, I, I suppose, is that political cross-dressing does work to get changes uh, through, but isn't always electorally, um, uh, doesn't always pay electoral dividends, as, as, as John just said. And John, do you think that resentment at that this um, those reforms at, the, at these kind of low wage sector played a part in these elections, which is something that some people have said to me here? Absolutely. I mean, well, one of the uh, SPDs they had um, incredible message discipline during the campaign, which allowed them to um, revive from absolutely the bottom of the pile. And one of those was um, No More Hearts. And it was very clearly they went on a um, very straightforward message of security, of pensions, uh, security of housing, whatever they mean, that sort of catch-all phrases, and an increase in the minimum wage. And it was if you want to vote Social Democrat, you're going to get a Social Democrat type of government. Now, what actually now transpires, uh, if they have to join, as they will, coalition with the Free Democrats, um, we'll see the biggest single stumbling block now for this new coalition is exactly which taxes will rise and uh, the Free Democrats will have to be given um, as a carrot uh, one or two tax cuts as well. Really, really interesting. And let's just turn to uh, levelling up. Uh, Alex, if you were sitting in, in the Cabinet Office or Whitehall working on levelling up, as, as a vast amount of <laughs> Whitehall seems to be doing at the moment, mm-hmm. would you look over at Germany, which obviously has performed one of the, you know, the biggest experiments a democratic country has, has performed in saying, OK, we're going to reunify, we're going to reunify on these, these terms and we're going to try very quickly to make this one country yeah, so I suppose I'm sure there are lessons to learn and, and would repay more uh, study than I have given it. But I think there are probably at least two messages to pull out of the German experience. The first is that if you're going to take levelling up seriously, it is a vast national project. And the reunification of Germany was you know, the biggest uh, imaginable national project feeding through into every aspect of political, uh, cultural, administrative life. And uh, so if you want to make a tangible difference, if you want to um, treat this as a core part of how a country is going to change, then uh, you need to give it the status uh, and the attention that it uh, deserves. So it needs to sort of permeate everything, I, I 
I suppose, if if levelling up is is to really mean something. And the second, as we've talked about before, is the the levels of government. Uh, I mean, G- Germany is governed very differently uh, to the UK, not just for the reasons that that John and we were talking about in terms of the sort of political culture at, an, at a national level, but the uh, regional, the lander, are more powerful than in the UK. There's more more coherence to regional and local governance in Germany, and they have in some respects more powers than uh, than mayors and local uh, authorities have in, in the UK. So I don't know enough about the detail, but I think the structure that existed in uh, uh, East and West Germany would have helped filter through that great national project. And we can start to see the beginnings of some of that with, with the Conservative uh, Party and the government looking to use mayors more and uh, the prominence of not just Ben Houchen and Andy Street, the Conservative mayors, but Andy Burnham and Sadiq Khan in the levelling up uh, discussion. So those, those are the two things I'd draw out of it, but no doubt lots more. There's a really important point. And John, hard to put this in a nutshell, but if you were telling the British government how to draw on Germany uh, as it looks to do levelling up in Britain, what would you say? Well, I was intrigued that Boris Johnson in an earlier speech did draw upon some of the stats in in my book, which were to demonstrate the extent to which uh, Germany has levelled up in the 30 years pro capita GDP um, of any resident in the um, five lender outside Berlin in the east in the former GDR um, was two years ago at 80% of the national average and is forecast by 2030 to have reached the same level, which I think in uh, 30 to 40 years historically is an astonishing achievement. The rate of difference between the north of England and the southeast of England is greater now than is the rate of difference between the east of Germany and the west of Germany. There's an interesting, so I think economically, um, it is uh, an incredible success story, huge amounts of investment. Western Germans have been required until uh, very recently to pay uh, a solidarity tax surcharge all the way through to help with infrastructure and investment in the East, something that is uh, quite, it was quite uh, significant and it required quite a lot of sacrifice. I think what's interesting briefly is the, that that's not necessarily produced a political read across in Eastern Germany. And one of the, in my view, less attractive manifestations of Germany is this constant self-criticism and seeing the glass as half empty And Eastern Germans are still voting in uh, dangerously high numbers for, particularly in two states, for the far-right AFD party. And they're doing it not so much for economic reasons. They're doing it for surly culture war reasons. And it is a salutary lesson that no matter how much money you throw at a problem, you don't necessarily change mindsets. And just briefly to pull this all together, your book's called Why the Germans Do It Better. Are they going to do it better when Angela Merkel finally leaves the stage? She's leaving a huge hole in European politics. Um, As I say, Germans freak at the idea of ever being praised for the quality of their governments um, and, and other things. And they are quite fearful. But I think that sense of gloom that had enveloped the country during the election campaign to a certain extent, has dissipated. And unless the coalition negotiations in the next weeks go spectacularly wrong, there should be a stable and potentially interesting 
successor regime that will bring new qualities. But at the same time, it does deprive Germany of the comfort blanket that Merkel had given them for more than a decade and a half. And Alex, if you were in the Prime Minister's office or in the Cabinet office and dealing with Merkel's successor, how would you reach out to them? Quickly, the scramble uh, to meet new leaders is not quite the same intensity as with a new American president, but obviously a speedy reaching out would be welcome. Uh, I think there's also, uh, I'm not sure this is going to happen, but uh, trying to move on from some of the disagreements and uh, traumas of the Brexit period, using it as an opportunity to reset some of that uh, relationship um, and to recognise that Germany uh, is and will remain one of the most the most powerful uh, voice in the bloc. And I think a, a sort of you know, advice to the Prime Minister not to repeat the mistakes of his predecessors about assuming that Angela Merkel uh, or, or the German Chancellor will ride to the rescue. There's often been a sense that, well, you know, if, if, if we can square Merkel, then we'll get what we want in terms of the Brexit negotiations. Negotiations or, or before that. Um, and I think uh, not underestimating the importance of European solidarity to, to, to Germany and the deeper structural questions that motivate German politicians uh, rather than the personalities. Very good advice. And of course, that reliance on having Merkel on their side didn't work out so well. Well, look, that's it for this edition of Inside Briefing. And my huge thanks to Alex Thomas, Gemma Tetlow, and especially to John Kampfler. If you've liked this podcast, do check out our sister podcast, IFG Live. We've got a couple of fascinating net zero themed episodes coming up with a great lineup, including the Prime Minister's COP26 spokesperson, Allegra Stratton. And of course, please do leave us a review. Do we need more jokes, more policy, even more detail? You tell us. And you can find more of our work, of course, at instituteforgovernment.org.uk. Well, conference season is over for another year. Time to catch up on some sleep for those who have been deprived of it. Have a very good weekend.